You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer here with Evan Ratliff and Max Linsky. You okay, man? Mellow. I thought I'd mellow it out a little bit. The smooth sounds of Aaron Lammer. Yeah, I'm feeling smooth. <laughs> feeling smooth. Uh, is it because of the conversation you had for this week's episode? It was a great conversation. I don't know how smooth. I don't know if it was smooth per se. Who was it with? Uh, I was with John Seabrook, who is a longtime New Yorker writer, um, but recently had a book out called The Song Machine Inside the Hit Factory. I think it came out a week or two ago. Uh, It's awesome. It's a great book. It's about it's sort of about how a small group of Swedish people took over the American pop charts. um, But it's also in a larger sense about how the entire production style of music changed to this team kind of. Lots of people have a hand in it. There's all sorts of really interesting stuff. Um, he's had a few pieces in the New Yorker. Yeah, he's kind of like been this. like like working on this book. Yeah, he kind in of, the New Yorker for a while. Yeah, we had a really interesting conversation about how he sort of built these pieces he did for the New Yorker, which included a piece on K-pop. Had, there's a piece um, adapted from the book about Max Martin, who's kind of the central figure in the songwriting stuff, and how he built that into a larger narrative. And then we also talked about how he does a lot of talk of the town pieces and how his features are in many ways kind of a mashup of like five talk of the town pieces huh. sometimes. So it was a system going. Yeah. He's got, he's got a whole, uh, whole, uh, nested, uh, matryoshka doll. Got time for us to on. go uh, deep on the New Yorker editorial process. Hey, how do you game the New Yorker? Um, do we have any sponsors this week? Speaking of games, we do EA sports, FIFA 16, uh, they are, are so generous that they're giving us more games to give away. We got like hundreds and hundreds of emails yeah. la- a couple weeks ago when we did it. So uh, the first 10 people who hear this, email podcast at longform.org, uh, and you will get a free copy of the game. Let us know whether you want Xbox or PS4, and seriously, like email right now because they were gone in seconds last time. Yeah, if you're hearing this and this is days late, this is days after this episode came out, there are no games left. Even if it's like Wednesday evening, you probably are not getting a game. Uh, Max will still personally respond to you if you email, but <laughs> you won't get a game. My guilt is so uh, <laughs> so deep. I write back to all those emails. I'm so sorry we are out of games. <laughs> Speaking of emails, Aaron. Well, if I was trying to send out uh, emails the way EA sends out games, I'd need to start an email newsletter, and I'd do so with MailChimp. Uh, over 8 million businesses rely on it. Make yours the next one. Longform uses it. Atavist uses it. It's great. It's the only name in the game. MailChimp. Thank you, MailChimp. And now here's Aaron with John Seabrook. Welcome, John Seabrook. Thanks Thank for you, coming Aaron. in. Uh, I've seen your. Uh, you have a new book out. Is, is the book out? Out. The book is out. Out. Uh, tell Out us, tell about. us, tell us the name of the book before it we get going. It is the song machine inside the Hit Factory, published by Norton. Published by W. W. Norton, by um, my high school classmate is your editor, Tom, Tom Mayer. 
You guys have similar beards. Yeah, we we actually uh, there was a period of time where we would get mistaken for each other. Yeah, people would come up to me and say, um, "I really loved you in that reggae band." Yeah, and I said, "I've <laughs> never ever been in a reggae band." Oh, um, I didn't know Tom was actually. In a yeah, reggae band. I'm I'm kind of blowing up Tom's spot there. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna have to get actually back to reggae him. is the better end of it. It was it started as a ska band. Um, uh. So this book's everywhere right now. There's been um, people writing about it. I guess my first question is, so this book tackles this um, evolution of music that's happening now as um, both as uh, these small group of Swedish people are coming to dominate pop songwriting, but simultaneously the shift towards this sort of factory, lots of of hands in the kitchen kind of uh, process. Why is this topic so fascinating to people? I think partly is that no one's ever written a book about it. Um, It's this huge change that's taken place over the last 25 years, going from um, melody plus lyrics method of writing songs to what I call in the book a track plus hook, uh, in which the producer comes first and then the melody comes and then the lyrics come, rather than basically the other way around. And also uh, the way the songs are actually recorded are now all done on computers with programming and not with session musicians, except in very rare exceptions. So that's a very large change uh, in our culture. And yet uh, it hasn't been covered by a book before. And so I think people have not seen it in terms of that 25 year arc. They've seen kind of pieces of it. Yeah. You know, uh, we know that, you know, technology has become more a part of making music. And we know that. The producers are more powerful than they used to be, and we know that something about Sweden is involved, but it hasn't ever really been kind of put together, which is actually interesting. Why not? You know, because it is sort of glaringly obvious as a book topic, and I guess it's partly that you know maybe serious people aren't supposed to write books about pop music. Right. That's one of them, and uh, also uh, that. Uh, the industry hasn't really been very eager for yeah. people to know about this thing, and so it's you know it's hard to get inside of it. I want to I want to start there with one of the things you said, which is um, people aren't supposed to take pop music too seriously. And I think uh, in reading the book, the the first sort of leap the reader needs to make, and I think you make as a writer, is taking the the music that you're covering seriously or, right. or not simply kind of uh, uh, having to constantly stop and go like, and this is a Backstreet Boys song we're talking about. What, what was that like for you as a writer to sort of step into that mindset? I knew when I took on the book that I was going to have to write from a position inside the music and, yeah. not, and not outside the music. I felt like at a certain point in writing this book, I was kind of writing a musical you know, there would be like a song and then there'd be some action and then there would be another song. And the songs became sort of the poles around which various points of the narrative uh, revolved. And uh, I just embraced the songs, I guess. Yeah. Uh, I think I'm able to communicate with my kind of wry voice that I kind of get it that I'm listening to a Backstreet Boys song here. Yeah. And it's not you know, necessarily the thing I want to do most you know, in my life. Uh, but uh, at the same time, I'm sort of willing to take it on its own terms. And the success of the songs was also um, an important sort of a factor in, in, in taking them seriously, because whether or not they were good, they, they were very successful and, uh, and understanding why was a valid, you know, sort of pursuit, even if ultimately the Backstreet Boys are not your favorite band. Well, what's it like, like when you're trying to research a topic like this and you're coming from an an outsider's perspective and and you sort of describe needing to become an insider in a way, like what are the entry points to a world like this? How do you how do you say, hey, I want to know everything about how you make music, the man who's made the most number one singles in the last 20 years? Are people receptive to a project like this? No, <laughs> definitely not. Uh, uh, the New Yorker was a powerful juju in this uh, whole process. The New Yorker 
is very highly respected by people in the music business, even though they may not all read it. Whatever reservations they had about, you know, remaining anonymous uh, were overbalanced by their desire to be in The New Yorker. And actually, uh, Aaron, something uh, that somebody said after, when I, when I did the first article, which was about Stargate, I remember afterwards uh, their manager, uh, Tim Blacksmith, said, now I can explain to my mother what I do. <laughs> you could give her the article, and his mother would understand what he did. And before that, his mother didn't understand what he did. And that was a very powerful motivator. You know. Which dovetails in some ways with this book feeling like both like a, a story about music and a story about technology. And right. technology is generally the industry where... Uh, people's mothers least understand right. what they're doing for a living. Right. So, so beyond the sort of motivation for doing it, there's a lot of things in this book that are almost like trade secrets about yeah. how these songs are constructed. Was there any tension between like, hey, this is how I do this, but don't put this in the book? Like, is is there an off the record element to the reporting of it? There wasn't a lot of off the record stuff. Stargate, uh, they were very open. Um, they trusted me. Uh, Dr. Luke was uh, another order of paranoia, uh, <laughs> you know, and now I think he's like five more orders of paranoia still, but uh, he was definitely, um, he, he was trying to act kind of cool, but it wasn't about how they work. It was more just about like the records that they're working on and, you know, can, are they going to get Drake on this project or not? You know, it's 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 that kind of stuff. It wasn't really about, um, you know, how they make the songs. I mean, Luke talked to me, actually, a, a fair amount about The Matrix, who had been this hit-making group in the early 2000s who had written songs for Avril Lavigne, like Com yeah. Complicated and Skater Boy. They basically <laughs> gave an interview in which they said, we wrote these songs. You know, it's absurd to think that she wrote them, we wrote them. And that was basically the last time they ever got a gig. So Luke was very aware of not taking any credit for, you know, the Katy Perry songs or the Kesha songs, uh, even if he felt that he, you know, you know, was the main author of those songs. And and so any suggestion that he that he did have something to do with them would have been considered off the record. What 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 is your presence like when you're in, sitting in a recording studio with Dr. Luke? Like are you quietly taking notes? Are you asking questions? Yeah, I try to sort of be a fly on the wall. That's my general kind of position is to sort of let things happen. Yeah. Uh, and if I can get two people in the studio sort of interacting with each other, then it's better uh, because you can kind of set up a dialogue between the two of them. And I, I'm, and I kind of like dialogue, and I, I rely on it uh, uh, fairly often. So... Uh, and then, you know, if, if things are kind of quiet, yeah, I'll ask a question. I, I tend to sort of try to, if I'm going to ask a bunch of questions, then I'll do it in like a sort of interview format that's disassociated from the Hangout format. So like in Luke's case, we sat downstairs, you know, in the sort of living room area, and I asked him a bunch of questions, and he answered them. And, you know, then we went upstairs and he started doing his thing in the studio and I more hung out and then would, would ask about stuff that I didn't understand. You let the scene develop so it feels like it's just unfolding in front of you and I'm not necessarily there or not there. It's just, I, I ended up taking myself out a lot, actually, when I was revising it. You know, I, he told me I would just take out and say, you know, he said or... He says, and I kind of tried to erase myself in the end as much as possible. I always try to let the material sort of speak to me. You know, like I have certain preconceptions going in about what would work as a piece or, you know, what, what I need. But as much as possible, I try to let uh, things happen. And then, you know, I, I record it all on my phone. I don't take a lot of notes. I have a kind of a very casual style, I yeah. think. Uh and I try to put people at ease. And, and you know, I don't really try to get people, really. I'm not looking, you know, for some sort of gotcha. Uh, you know, I, I feel like I'm kind of on their side. It's interesting because you said 
that there's there was this incident with the Matrix, who were the pre who who were the Stargate of two thousand and two, right, right. where they said, and, and that was a little bit closer on the heels of like the. When when was Millie Vanilli? That was the mid nineties. That, that was early nineties, late eighties. Late eighties, yeah. yeah. Late eighties. So there was this kind of like his, building history of, hey, it's kind of a problem if um, you're publicly saying you wrote someone else's music yes. and that there's, but you know the I think probably the number one hit right now is a, a weekend song right. that Max Martin quite openly produced, and you can go on. You know, there's many websites you can go and see who produced yeah. any song. So. It seems like there's a weird, like, what exactly is the secret that's being kept in the bag? What what would they be freaked out about people finding out when this information is all over the you internet? Know, I don't know if there is anyone big. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. It's like, I, I, I don't know. I mean, everybody knows that these artists don't write their own songs. I mean, if they think about it for five seconds, they know that. And, you know, it's something that's happened for a long time. Yeah. You know, uh, it didn't happen during the singer-songwriter era, but apart from that, it was basically the normal position. Uh, so I don't think they have anything to fear about people knowing that. I think the difference between now and, let's like, say, the Brill Building era is that the artists are much more powerful in that their image is extremely important uh, you know they're not they're not just sort of puppets in the hands of the producers. Like Katy Perry has significant power in her relationship with Dr. Luke and Max Martin. That you know everyone's very worried about pissing one of these artists off because no matter how good you are, and no matter how much of the song you actually write, if the artist doesn't do the song, you're you're done. You know I mean the, the, so so I feel like that. That was kind of the the major source of anxiety. There's a lot of anxiety in the music business. There just is, you know. I think they're all there's fear. There's a lot of people fearing for their jobs, you know. And now with with the you know since Napster, you know, not knowing where the revenues were going to come from, just ratcheted up the fear level. And then you can kind of obsess about the artist getting pissed off at you if you're one of the producers and that just kind of adds on to it. Well, and I think that you pretty artfully in the book um, depict, it's not purely a situation of one person is a, a puppet and these people are writing for the puppet, that there is a relationship and sort of an intricate dance between right. artists and producers and even someone like Katy Perry who maybe doesn't have sole credit on any of her songs. Right. You see these there are these songwriting sessions and there are the this whole world that creates the music. I'm curious as to how you um how you regarded the protagonist of this book as characters. We learn lots and lots about how they do what they do, but I can't think of a single time in the book anyone talks about why they do it. Right, so right. What, how do you go point. about writing a people who who won't sort of tell you what they care about and what they want and and what their the desires of their soul are. Yeah, that's a good question. Um I feel like I approach uh their talent with a with a sort of awe uh that they have this kind of magic inside them that allows them to to create uh, a hit song uh and that 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 was uh a special uh sort of um, uh, treasure that uh, maybe I would never actually uncover, but that, that it gave what was that, whatever it was inside them that allowed them to do that, a glow, a, sort of an attractive glow, so that even if, you know, the only reason they did it was to make a hit and, and to make money, if you really broke it down, there was still uh, this rare quality that allowed them to do it. And, uh, you know, maybe that was part of their background, maybe it was part of their process, maybe it was part of the way they use technology, but I th that was, I feel like, the thing that uh, ultimately drew me to these people and made me, I, I loved being in the studio with these people, I loved watching it happen, I'm in a band, you know, I play music, I, not this kind of music, but, you know, old rock songs. And, you know, I, on one level, just sort of really was into their musical chops, you know, like the fact that they did the chord progression this way. 
and you know, and if you and if you break down Max Martin songs in particular, you know, the chord progressions are often very unusual. Uh, they don't really fit, you know, either you know, sort of blues progressions or Europop progressions. And so I got into it on that level. Yeah, a lot the music level. You describe this world of um, producers and songwriters as both a paranoid world and a world that has a lot of fear in it, and yeah. it clearly also has a, a certain kind of a joy in it. But the relationships between the major players in this book—almost every character in this book was either the protege of someone else, right. or how do you navigate the relationships between the people? I mean, is when you're talking to Doctor Luke. Is he wondering, like, hey, is Max Martin mad at me? Like, are are you also thinking about how they relate to each other and the communications that are happening internally within that group? Because it's a very small group of people. It's totally a small group of people, and it is such a sort of guild of, you know, sort of masters and apprentices, and uh, it seems like all the learning is done at the literally at the side of the master. You know, I mean, you have to be proficient enough to get to the side of the master. Yeah. But uh, once you get there, you know, it's it's very much of a sort of a master-apprentice relationship. And, and because the Swedes have, A, been so successful, and B, have been particularly sort of mentor-apprentice-oriented, you know, and it's almost like a biblical thing. You have Dennis Pop, you had like the, the 10 Sharon you know, producer songwriters, and then they've gone on to having. You could draw it all up in a big family tree, and you'd basically have like fifty percent of the hits of the last you know ten years on that. With Max Martin, you know, nobody talks about him. Every you know, it's like I I think I liken him to Obi Wan. I always felt like there was this kind of like he's half real and 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 half kind of ethereal, and when you meet him. You know, he doesn't seem like that at all. He's he he's a normal, unprepossessing guy. He looks a little nervous uh, when you're talking to him. Um, he's not very tall, uh, and uh, you know he's working all the time uh, and doesn't you know do anything to sort of uh, exalt or, or call attention to himself. So. And and everybody else doesn't want to say anything about him either because everybody is extremely aware of his privacy and and his need to remain you know anonymous and so I really didn't even try to understand like what they really thought yeah, about Max. Uh, I mean I think they they really wanted to work with Max and so whatever would make them work with Max is what they thought about Max because it just sort of seems like if you can work with Max then everything can change in your life. What you're describing is sort of a reporting nightmare which is someone who is both reticent and who other people are afraid to talk about That's with right. you. What like where where did you push through those well, limits? Well, you know what I you know in the end Aaron, I, I I sort of felt like this and I sort of put this into my New Yorker adaptation last week that ultimately this guy is this kind of shadow, this kind of ghost, or this sort of, as you know, to be a little bit glib about it, blank space in in our pop music culture. I got a lot of stuff about him from other people, so it's like he's kind of there in outline and in some pretty good detail in terms of, you know, his experiences as a kid, what the parents' record collection uh you know, uh, music school in Sweden, the whole early uh, glam rock period when he was in this band called It's Alive. It's it's sort of an amazing uh, start for this guy. And there are videos of of their performances. Uh, you know, because you know, in this for this few short years of his life, he was a performer. And then, you know, all that shut down. He's kind of dull in, in a lot of ways. But, you know, he, he, he's not dull in what he's accomplished. The blank space is sort of the right way to describe it. I would say I maybe there's maybe 10 personal details about him in, in the whole, whole yeah, book. And, yeah. and that's including very small details. Right. Even. Um, yeah. You don't know anything about his marriage, his children. The one thing that I actually would have liked something about is the time when the industry kind of turned its back on him. 
which is uh, after 2000, uh, the Backstreet Boy thing kind of burst all of a sudden. Um, you know, Eminem was suddenly all the rage, and and you know, I want it that way sounded kind of lame to to a lot of people, and and he was, you know, as 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 one of his colleagues says in the book, he was like the sixth Backstreet Boy, right? Uh, and so you know, no one really wanted to work with him, and that would be actually interesting to know, like how that affected him, how that changed him, you know, how that made him. I assume he he resolved never to let himself be in that situation again by uh, constantly switching up his collaborators as soon as he felt the you know the tide begin to turn uh, and uh, you know so so since two thousand and four he ha- he hasn't had another one well, he came, so he had a, he came back with um, since you've been gone. Which is the classic Dr. Luke kind of indie rock pop song, and you know then he had that that great run of kind of indie rock uh, sounding hits. They weren't really indie rock, but they had a kind of an indie vibe with with um, with Dr. Luke. But now you know, but now he's moved beyond that really. Um, more electro. I don't know what you would it's call. Like a, almost like Quincy Jonas vibe to some of the stuff. Like the yeah. the weekend songs. I think yeah. have a sort of thriller kind of vibe. To yeah, them. that's true. Hey, I'm going to pause things here for a quick word from our sponsor, Masterclass. For the first time, Masterclass is making it possible for anyone to learn from the best in the world. Have you ever wanted to learn acting from Dustin Hoffman? How about tennis from Serena Williams? Or me, myself, I took a course writing with James Patterson outlining with James Patterson, how to market your book with James Patterson, a lot of pretty interesting stuff for people from a variety of backgrounds. Uh, the way it works is you pay 90 bucks, you get three to five hours of video lessons from the instructor, plus workbooks, interactive exercises, and Q&A with the instructors. This is lifetime access, so you can go back to it whenever you want. The production value is outstanding. They've got Academy Award-winning directors working on each one. They've got great engineers, so you can access this from your phone, wherever. It's a beautiful, high-quality experience, and it's something I've never had access to before, uh, someone at that level uh, teaching me. So I want you to go to masterclass.com slash longform. Again, that's masterclass.com slash longform. 90 bucks a class. You'll be learning something new and supporting this show. Thank you, Masterclass. Here I am back with John Seabrook. As a writer, you said that you you started at 29 at The New Yorker. What, like, or that was when you got your first piece published. Right. What, what, What's your Max Martin story? Where did where what what is your uh, origin? Uh, where did you get your start? You know, all of that New Yorker stuff and the idea of the New Yorker and particularly of John McPhee came from John McPhee and from Princeton, which is where I went to college and uh, studied with him. When I arrived there, I had no notion of being a writer, and I certainly wasn't thinking about the New Yorker. Uh, but uh, and and my early writing experiences were more in a, doing fiction at college. Uh, but you know, junior year I took that course he teaches. I've since taught it myself, called the literature of fact. And uh, you know, the notion that you can use you know sort of novelistic techniques in a nonfiction context. You know, of course, it's that's the bedrock of sort of new journalism, but. You know, I guess I had to sort of figure it out for myself. And uh, and John was a very inspiring uh, teacher and also sort of became a friend. And uh, so by the time I was out of college, I really had, uh, you know, The New Yorker kind of on the brain. And, uh, and then it was just a question of how do you actually get there? I'm very, I want to pause you for one sec there because... If I were to if I were to poll people who've been on this show, I would say maybe ten percent of them came from through that John McPhee class. I mean, it's really an incredible. Yeah. Like, actually, in some ways, much like Chiron uh, 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 in Sweden, it, it's an incredible factory for several generations yeah, of David journalists. Did too. Um, what was the class like? I'm always 
I hear about it so many times in the show, and I always want to ask what the course itself was like. And I've heard very different things from different people about their memory of what McPhee's class was. You know, I the thing that always stayed with me, even though eventually uh, I had to uh, kind of throw it out, was his his uh, discussions of structure. Um, structure uh, is, I think, the single most important quality to determining whether you're going to make it as a long-form writer. You know, you have to have some kind of innate sense of structure, and you have to, even if even if it's not so clear that you could actually make an outline of it before you start writing, and I never actually do make outlines, but part of the writing is 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 figuring out what that structure is that you have a glimpse of. John John's famous, you may have heard this from one of your other guests, <laughs> but John's famous line was that um, like the lead of a story should be like a, a flashlight quickly sh- shined around inside an urn uh, very quickly so that you get a sense of the dimensions of the urn, but you're not really uh, all that sure what it is. Yeah, and I I always felt like when I was done with the reporting of a story that I had that kind of sense that okay there is some structure here and and, and you know it's like it's like the the statue inside the block of marble that's already like the Michelangelo idea that's already sort of done it's just a question of freeing the the statue from the marble I always sort of felt that way and I think you know John. John would do these um, crazy diagrams of his structure. He would show how how the piece. Uh, I remember him doing it for uh, the Roadkill piece, uh, Georgia Travels in Georgia. I guess it was called. And it starts out with this guy he was traveling around with who was stopping to collect roadkill, and and he had this whole elaborate sort of diagram about you know how things plugged into this and and foreshadowed this and then circled back to this. And even though, like in the end, when I actually started writing for the New Yorker and started to try to do that stuff, and then I realized that if I if I ever tried that, first of all, it would be crappy, and second of all, I would lose my mind, uh, and so I basically just had to throw it all out. But but it was, I guess it gave it a kind of an engineering kind of a vibe, which I liked. It wasn't just you know poetry or you know sitting around and being creative. There there was a there was a sort of a uh, engineering aspect to it, and and John was, you know, he was always, even though you know he's a writer and a and a and a esteemed writer and and a wonderful writer, but he never really seemed like a writer, you know, and like he was always just like a like a curious dude that yeah, more like a like a like the people he wrote about, like a geologist or an engineer, and I guess I kind of responded to that too, you know, it just sort of felt, oh yeah, this is this is not some uh, you don't have to be like Balzac sitting in a in an attic drinking you know a hundred cups of coffee in the day. You you can sort of live your life like you know uh, you can have a wife and kids and sort of have an institutional association. That, that was the other thing about the New Yorker, I guess, that appealed to me was that it was an institution uh, and it had you know a kind of um, you know. Um, American kind of traditional sort of uh, it wasn't before they you called them brands you know sort yeah. of you know imperature or something and uh, and so that was appealing too but but still um, there was a there was a, probably eight years in between you know the time I took that course and the time I actually got an assignment to work for the New Yorker I was going to say what 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 was your sort of idea of how one became a New Yorker writer at that point? Uh, I really didn't know. And uh, I had one of my friends in, uh, he didn't stay in college, but it was uh, J.D. Salinger's son, Matt Salinger. And uh, and I'd gotten to know uh, uh, Jerry uh, uh, through Matt, and um, we'd visit him in his house in Cornish and stuff. And 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 he was so he was a person that I knew who I think was it's for sale now actually yeah, yeah. I, I actually saw the real estate yeah. ad in uh, in uh, New Hampshire it's pretty cheap actually I, uh, I think a lot of people are like wow you can get JD it's like five hundred forty thousand dollars right <laughs> I don't know if you get the bunker you get a studio and uh, yeah for 
Um, so, um, so I actually asked him, uh, uh, what, how do I, you know, I remember he was kind of cross with me. I said, how do you, how do you write for the New Yorker? He said, you write, you know, he was very sort of like impatient <laughs> of, of course you write. And I was like, okay, but like, maybe I could try to, um, do they have, you know, like, Jobs, or you know, can you do something? You can start somewhere, and uh, so he he said, "I have no idea, but I'll see what I can do." And he actually called up. He at that point he hadn't written for the New Yorker for you know however many, that that was probably like nineteen eighty four, and and I think his last piece was published in nineteen sixty four. So so he didn't have a whole lot of context, but he did have E. J. Khan who was you know, one of the older writers, famous for his five-part series on grain, which has now sure. become the, the symbol of everything that the old New Yorker sort of excessively did. Uh, and so I actually went to see E.J. Khan and in his office in, in, the, in the old, old, old building maybe, like three buildings back, and uh, he was totally unhelpful. And so Salinger was just like one of my son's, son's friends wants to write for the New Yorker. Yeah, can he come by your office? Yeah, yeah. It's a it, high pressure uh, situation. I mean, it was. It's just like you know, uh, I guess what I'm sometimes called on to do now by my you know friends uh, who have a son that you know wants. To, and I'm actually you know nicer about it than E.J. Khan <laughs> was. Uh, so you know, I did that, but. But that didn't lead anywhere. And clearly the way to the New Yorker was to go and work somewhere else and sort of prove your, you know, learn. I, I never really studied. Uh, um, I mean, I, I did the I did the McPhee course, but I never really sort of did like a journalism, like school type thing where you learn about, you know, all the, the sort of uh, more sort of nuts and bolts stuff of, of journalism. And so... Uh, I wasn't quite sure how to break in, but uh, I, I started uh, writing book reviews, actually. Uh, I got some freelance book reviews in The Voice, The Christian Science Monitor, um, The Nation published one. And and then a guy who worked at this uh, magazine that was starting up in the mid-'80s, early mid-'80s, called Manhattan Inc. It was a business magazine. Uh, said Sounds to me, like the business magazine in like a mov- in a movie. Yeah, Manhattan. exactly. It was Manhattan sort of Wall Inc. Street era, yeah. uh, you know, 1986, uh, before the whole thing kind of fell apart and and the crash came, and uh, and you know, he asked me to write some arts pieces for the back of the magazine, and then when I I wrote one or two, and he said these are good. Uh, why don't you try a profile uh, for the magazine? And so I did that, and. Uh, he said, "Well, this is actually good. How would you like to, um, you know, ha- have a sort of a contract where you write?" So, so I sort of did that and and became this kind of business profile writer, and that didn't lead to New Yorker, but that did lead to Vanity Fair, uh, and uh, Tina Brown brought me to Vanity Fair, and Tina Brown, who would, you know, I thought would be the the last person that ever comes to New Yorker, came to the New Yorker. But that actually ended up being kind of a good thing for me because she knew me and she knew that I was interested in stuff that she was also interested in and she could kind of trust me as a more of an ally of hers. There was a real, there was a lot of snobbery. Sounds like a lot of paranoia and fear. <laughs> there was a lot of paranoia and fear. And there was a lot of snobbery too directed Tina's way. Yeah. You know? Did, was, you, did you, in your, I mean, I know that there is a certain amount of paranoia and fear at, at all magazines and, uh, you know, New Yorker being one of near the top, I assume that that's amplified. A- at what point did you, you've been there, what is this now going on? I became a staff writer in 93, so okay. it's 23 years. 23 years, going on go, going on 25 years. 20, what point yeah. did you stop, d- did the paranoia and fear ever subside or does it still, still inside I'm you? I'm not paranoid, I am fearful of, uh, actually I used to be more, I think, fearful. I, I think when you... I think for any writer, you know, the assumption is, is that when you're starting out at the New Yorker, you're just not going to be as good as, you know, the people who came before you who were your role models just because they were great and you're just you. And, you know, you're really surprised when some of those people themselves actually sort of compliment you on your on your work. And, uh, 
you begin to re- you begin to think that maybe you have something that might be special, but you know the fear is mainly that you don't, and that it's going to be discovered with the next piece. And that took me a while, you know, years probably to get over that. Also, you sort of begin to think that maybe the fear is a good thing because it's sort of a motivating factor and it gets you to the deadline and and gets the piece done. And you know, there's probably something to be said for that. But but I guess uh, I have become a little bit more confident in my ability that I am going to get it. You know, I am I am going to figure it out. Uh, and it doesn't necessarily have to come out right the first time, you know, and that I have always figured it out before to one degree or another, you know, and and uh, and also I guess the feeling is that I have is that we have a lot of, you know, really great younger writers who are, you know, busting their asses to 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 write as much as they can and I don't feel as you know, sort of urgently compelled to do it as much. There's a very interesting, this is a very interesting thing. It's kind of like there's a there's a huge literary home alone moment when you write pieces that are published in The New Yorker and, you know, every, you know, the copy editors, the okayers, your editor, they take out your jokes, they, they cut your prose, they make you put things in like a New Yorker way, you're you're like you know tearing your hair out then you get a book contract and you turn those published pieces back into microsoft word documents and suddenly it's like i say you're home alone your editor's not there the copy editor's not there nobody is there you can restore the piece to your you know original sort of you know voice with all of your mannerisms and quirks that the new yorker you know, sort of shaved off in order to make it into a New Yorker piece. And that is a very existential moment, you know, because you have to really ask yourself, what is my voice? What is the New Yorker's voice? And, you know, what is the overlap uh, between both? Yeah. And that, which is the sort of the sweet spot that you kind of want to be in. And it's basically taken me four books to figure that out. And this is really the first book that I felt like, and the irony of course is that once you are home alone and you do have the opportunity to put the jokes back in, you don't in almost every case because maybe that was the right, or even if you don't, it wasn't the right way to go at that, at this point, my voice and the New Yorker's voice have sort of, you know, merged so much. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm surprised to hear that you still have an ind- uh, vo- uh, two voices right. in your head after well, they, 23 years. Yeah, well, they, that's been the progress, is those two voices kind of coming together. Yeah. And I think maybe with this book, is they did come together, you know. You've, you've managed to ride a surprising number of... Uh, zeitgeists in your so you were writing about business in new york in the 80s good time to be writing about business in new york in the early 90s you were writing a lot about technology and computers groundbreaking time to be writing about that email from bill did you yeah so you wrote a a profile of uh bill gates largely conducted through emails with bill gates right um and i think most people had never heard of email at that point yeah and it's a a profile that has to use up a significant part of the first thousand words explaining what email is right to, to put this in time right um what is it like sort of having ridden the, did you learn something from riding waves like that and being sort of out in front of stories? I don't really uh, know uh, if I learned anything from that. I think, um, you know, I always just try to sort of ask myself what, what I find interesting, uh, you know, like what I like to do, you know, yeah. what what like when I'm not necessarily even thinking as a, journalist and uh and then follow that and i maybe so with you know with with business it was a little bit of an accident you know i i wasn't necessarily interested in being a businessman or in conducting business but with you know email um you know i had gotten interested in it and realized you know i mean this was 1993 i mean there were people who knew that the internet was going to change the world I can't say that I was necessarily one of them at that moment, but 
you know, clearly uh, this was something that was uh, going to go someplace. Yeah. Uh, and the idea that you could email Bill Gates, the idea that you couldn't get an interview, you know, by conventional means, and that you could sit in your 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 room and and send an email and get an email back in fifteen minutes. You don't have to be a complete uh, genius to to realize that that's actually a pretty amazing thing, and that you know it's worth writing about. So, you know, after that, I did different stuff, and I kind of bounced around in terms of it wasn't like another big zeitgeisty thing that came along. Did, um, did you consciously make the decision to like break off from doing technology stories because you felt like you had sort of had a period of it? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of, I guess, it's a hard bit, to do bit like Max Martin and and the, uh, the post, early the, the early, you know, you, you at a certain point don't want to be the person who's... You get typecast, yeah. I think. Uh, technology's hard to do. I mean, my, my sort of technique was, you know, to put myself into the story and you know, experience it as a sort of a newbie, yeah, a bit sort of a faux naive kind of narrator, and then the reader would sort of hopefully kind of relate to my experience, and then be more inclined to actually think about the technology, and and that kind of wears thin, I guess, after yeah. a while. Looking back on your own technology reporting, do you go back and read that? Bill Gates profile or any stuff like that like what what is it like looking back on it with the the benefit of time you know I think that piece starts out with using the phrase the information highway at that point we didn't even know whether to call it the internet or yeah or the information highway so there were there were things like that or even like the beginning of nobrow actually starts out with music uh, I'm on the the subway. Uh, listening to Biggie Smalls on my Discman, you know, <laughs> which is kind of a way of like immediately dating your book. Uh, so you know, there, there's 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 things that that don't really stand up, but I don't know. I look back at it sometimes. I, I th- there was some good stuff in that Bill Gates article, and uh, and it did work kind of as a as a as a way of both uh, profiling him and of uh, giving people a sense of uh, what this technology could be used for by by using it myself you know i think that was a pretty good idea my favorite piece of yours um is a piece you wrote about stampedes oh yeah Actually, I'm not. Is stampede the the correct term? Well, that's or is, a slightly loaded term. Okay, so I I was gonna crowd I was trying crushes. To, crowd crush. Your piece about crowd crushes. Um, and I actually I reread it this morning, and I also read a piece that you wrote, I believe, shortly before it about patent law and the windshield wiper would be that was the, a, that was significantly before that so, was actually my second piece for the New York. Second, that's that that's from the early '93, and both of these pieces. You were unpacking these incredibly complex issues that have uh, elements of psychology, engineering, scientific research, like all of these sort of different things combined, and right. a lot of history. Right. Um, what what attra- like what attracts you to subjects like that? That's what it, what you just said. I have a piece that's sitting around waiting to come out, which is like that in spades. Yeah. Uh, it has ancient history. It has little modern physics. It has all this stuff in it. I don't know. I I like the challenge of uh, being kind of eclectic, I guess, in a piece, uh, and and letting narrative and letting scenes and letting sort of 750 word blocks of text with white spaces before and after, which kind of comes from writing talk of the town stories. Mm. Writing Talk of the Town Stories, which I continue to do, you know, maybe 10 a year, uh, and I've always got some going, is a not insignificant way of uh, understanding my work, I think. Uh, I mean, I've written a lot of them, and if you can write, like, a whole story with, like, a beginning, a middle, and an end in 750 words, and then you can use that technique you know, in a longer piece so that each of the sections kind of has an integrity, a sort of narrative integrity. I think it allows you to then really uh, have a lot of ideas kind of bouncing around in there without it 
seeming overly general or or overly complex or just you know overly uh, stuffed because it's always the narrative that uh, is guiding the flow of ideas and that the ideas kind of end when the scene ends and it has a kind of a a feeling of um, inevitability or kind of a rightness to it Uh, so I like to feel like uh, you know things are kind of clacking off of each other in a piece Uh, like you know those five balls that you would hit you know like swing one and clack the other one and I like to like feel like I've set up the the mechanism in a way that that can happen, uh, and that it's once it's set up, it it's sort of like a self perpetuating system, and and it, and it just kind of goes off on its own. You've you must have written over one hundred talk of the towns by now, probably. What like w- repeating that exer that seven hundred and fifty right. word exercise over and over again? What I, I hesitate to say what have you learned because I assume that you've that you've learned and unlearned many things over time. But like, where are you now with the seven hundred and fifty word format? You know, I I feel like I'm sort of getting to my sort of postmodern phase or something, <laughs> where I I they're they're very short. They're, so so. 750 words is over in a blink of an eye and if you fight it too much and and try to you know make it into a longer piece than it is uh it doesn't really work it it has to have a kind of it's a glance and it's not a glance right on it's an off center glance at you know at a at a celebrity or at a you know public figure or you know somebody that has been sort of you know, treated in this way, and you're going to take it this way. And, uh, you know, I've also learned that the setup in the talk piece is uh, 60 or 70 percent of the battle. You, you you want going in to have figured out like a good scene. A, a good, and a lot of publicists, particularly in the music business, don't really understand this, uh, the need for like a scene, you know, the need not just to have an interview, but to have an interview in a place where the place is going to be part of the story. When you're setting a scene, how do you avoid that being something that you've sort of uh, engineered? Yeah, you ha- it's uh, you really need someone. You need two people if you can get them, because if you have two people, or if you have, you know, a scene going on where there's other stuff, and then the person you're writing about, and you can sort of have them connecting in some way, then it doesn't really feel as engineered as if um you know it's just you and that person in this place and in, in talk you can't use the first person it's uh, you it's just not done you kind of count as zero people in the situation yeah. because of the lack of the eye possibility and, and you can't yeah occasionally you can sort of like maybe quote yourself in a in a quote but uh, essentially you can't really do that either so yeah i try to like if it's a band or something you know, like I like the last three, the last three talk, uh, the last two talk pieces I've done have both been about bands. Uh, I haven't actually written them yet, but uh, the the reporting of them. And one was this uh, these guys called Darling Side, who are these uh, former a cappella singers from William Williams College, who are actually having some success as a kind of a four man close harmony group. Uh, and uh, but they're very sort of fresh-faced and and youthful and idealistic. And so we went and got milk and cookies at uh, the bakery on 74th West 74th, where you go downstairs, like yep. Levan Bakery or something. And uh, then we walked to Central Park and um, ate the cookies. And you know there was a dog that kept like sniffing this guy's crotch, and and he kind of tried to push him off. And uh, the, so the setup with the milk and cookies and going to the bakery and 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 their music being kind of sugary and buttery like yep. the cookies you you want you, you need like uh, like you need like the setup you need like a a, a jump a conceptual jump maybe yep. or something that re- that resonates that widens it and then you need some action and then you know you're out so uh, did you suggest the milk and cookies what I usually do with talk of the town is and I often I almost always write about musicians now. I usually ask the publicists to talk to the artists 
and ask them what they like to do in New York. Is there something kind of characteristic? Is you know something they wanted to do? You know, you can find the stuff. When I was preparing for this interview, I was thinking a lot about the relationship of the features to the book. I was not thinking about the relationship of the talk of the town pieces to the features. Doing some of these pieces, particularly these multi-strand stories like the 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 patent story or the stampede story. Um, has an element of doing like five talk of the towns right. and then gluing them all yeah, together totally. is like, what, what is the challenge of that? Uh, what, what is the glue that makes five talk pieces turn into a good feature? Yeah, it totally feels like that sometimes to me. Um, but the glue has got to be the lead, the lead. I mean, the lead, you have to start for that to work. You just have to know where to start and you might not know it going in, but, it, the structure is just everything uh, because it has to be loose. It ha- it can't if you if you're gonna make the scenes kind of work as scenes and even as little as you say like kind of little talk pieces, um, they have to have enough sort of space around them to breathe. So you really need to begin in a place that it it starts the narrative, but it also asks some kind of fairly broad conceptual question. Basically, every time, every morning when I when I start writing, I read, you know, kind of what I've done, and if I can tell uh, pretty quickly if it's not getting me where I feel like I need to go, and you know, so then it's just like, okay, this part is important in some way. This part that I thought was the beginning, but it's not the beginning, and so I'm just going to sort of move that down, and then. And, you know, the things that are important, the things that need to be in the piece will emerge. And eventually, one of them will be the right beginning. And maybe the thing that you thought was the beginning at the beginning is actually the end. You know, that that actually happens more than once. So you just have to it's, it, do that, I think, and, 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 and look and be able to, you know, write and then sit back and read what, what you wrote. I'm interested in in how that process works also in in the jump from the feature to the book. Like, you know, looking back on that piece you did on K-pop, you have half a book before you get to K-pop to explain all of the reasons that K-pop happened. When you're doing that in a condensed magazine format, how do you span all of that history? Well, I don't think, I mean, the K-pop piece, as it appears in the book, is... Well, it, it's there's one very significant change in terms of the way it appeared in the magazine, mm-hmm. and uh, and that's the scene at the Anaheim Center that is the kind of running scene in the book, uh, in in the in the K-pop piece of the book, started the New Yorker piece. So it started outside the Anaheim Arena with the fans in the parking lot, and then you went back into the history of K-pop. But but because it was, you know, a 7,000-word piece, it felt like it was better to start and end with the scene and try to kind of contain things within the scene because, you know, you were going to be going to Korea, you're going to be going back into the history, you're going to be back to, you know, the history of Korean music, Um, you're going to be going into, you know, plastic surgery and, and stuff like that. So... I felt like I needed a strong narrative rapper in the in the New Yorker. In the book, I actually changed it so that um, it starts with a new section that connects to the notion of hit factories. You know, writing this book has taught me some stuff about books and why books are important. And 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 why are they important? Because if books didn't exist. Th- we wouldn't understand um, anywhere near as deeply uh, our world in general uh, and specifically how things develop and change. Like it was a real experience going into a subject that had never really had a book written about it and, and seeing that because there was no book, there was no long form treatment of this subject, it was like kind of trying to uh, tell climate change, but only going like one weather report at a time and never connecting them. You couldn't see the patterns. You know, you couldn't see uh, how, you know, this person had changed 
this way of making music and then that influenced that person and that influenced, you know, and because there was no book, no one really sort of knew it. Uh, or if they knew it, they didn't share it. Uh, and uh, and even, you know, doing pieces about it in New Yorker, I, I think, uh, was hard to... I mean, the first piece, the, the Stargate piece, definitely, like, a lot of people related to that piece or were interested in that piece. But, you know, that didn't tell you really... Uh, it, it gave you a... It gave you a sketch of a world in which things had changed, but it didn't really put it into the kind of context that allowed you to really understand why it had changed. And yeah. that was what the book allows you to do. Yeah, and the book goes all the way back to what's a Dennis Pop, Dennis Pop who, you know, it's all kind of his his giant child's, yeah. um, and he's such a sort of a tragic, yeah. and, uh, and and probably wouldn't have been someone who you could have pitched a, f- a feature about. No way, because he's dead. Dead and, and fairly obscure. Fairly, no way. Absolutely uh, no way. So coming to the end of this, you have this, I don't know, three or four feature run in the book. The book kind of marks, I assume, an end to this field of inquiry for you. I don't know where I could go with it from here. I feel like uh, I've I've closed the chapter on this particular subject, which is, you know, how producers and top line writers create songs. Um, But I really, in writing the book, I really felt like I kind of found my subject and I sort of found my people in a way I never felt with my previous books. There was a certain point in this book, you know, as I as I started to go downhill, as you know, as they say, in a good way, you know, where momentum is behind you, where I really I actually realized I was having fun. You know that that I was really actually enjoying this, and uh, even though I didn't exactly know every day where I was going, I was really uh, engaged in finding out, and that that songs and talking about songs kind of connected back to something that I had loved a long, long, long time ago. Uh, you know, as a very early you know child, and that was a very powerful thing when I was able to sort of tap into that. And, and unleash that. And I kind of like to read it. kind of like to get back to that feeling. Yeah. Is uh, it going to be hard to let go of this topic for that reason? Yeah, it was hard to finish the book. I mean, I, I said this. I mean, writing's always hard. It's never, it's never like fun, fun, you know. But uh, I did say to my wife, you know, I'm actually kind of sad that this book is finished. Uh, I, I miss it. Yeah. You know, and I, I, yeah. So I look forward to figuring out where I go from here, but I'm not sure. That, I mean, that was my, that was going to be my question. Do you jump right into a totally new topic? Do you do you take a um, sabbatical from thematic work and do some some one offs? Like, how do you how yeah, do you? I think I do one offs. That's what I've done. I and mean, that's a good thing about the New Yorker is that you can go and uh, do a totally different subject. I would like it not just to be totally one off. It would be nice if it were like something that pointed forward to a longer project, but maybe I just have to do some one-offs. Are you seeing any constellations forming of that kind? <laughs> uh, no. I, I, you know, I'm looking forward to promoting this book and to hearing feedback from, particularly from people who are in the business. Yeah. Uh, and, because, uh, you know, I mean, ultimately, I think I got it right. You know, yeah. I, I, I think I think this is how it works. But I didn't really have a huge amount of contact with people who do this. And I haven't had a huge amount of feedback yet from people who do this, although the people who do it and have gotten back to me seem to sort of, you know, think that, I, that I've, I've hit it pretty much right. Do you, This is a loaded question, but do you worry about losing touch? You know, when, you, when someone... Uh, you know, who's been doing this for 23 years, talks about covering chart-topping pop music. Is there like an expiration date where you're like, you know, when I hit uh, this age, no more. You know, McPhee is like writing about like golf ball picker-uppers now. Well, he's he's doing his kind of memoir pieces. They're actually brilliant. And he's writing about being a man who is his age which yes yeah, in his 80s, 80s, in now. His 80s. Um, do, do you feel any of that that tension yourself the only thing about being older and writing about pop music is actually when you have to like go and interview 25 year old or 20 year old 
pop stars or their handlers. It's not like I personally uh, don't like meeting 20-year-olds. I do, but you do feel like they're sitting there going, man, this guy's older than my dad. <laughs> you know, and uh, they're, of course, polite about it and stuff, but it's a little embarrassing. I mean, you know, pop music is definitely like of all genres one in which youth is is at a you know premium uh although in the label side that's not necessarily the right. case and 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 you know max martin is is 44 so you know, the guys that are making the hits are are you know respectable ages <laughs> but uh but yeah you do run into some young people but it, it, that's also true in the tech world sure. too and you know, it's a condition of uh, of being that kind of immersive journalist and following that New Yorker tradition. You do your subjects do, I guess, have to grow up a little bit with you. Yeah, it, it feels a little strange to put yourself into a situation where it's a bunch of twenty three year olds and uh, there's no connection to your your generation at all. But on the other hand, I don't really feel that you, you go out of touch. Whether the piece succeeds or fails is not going to depend on whether I'm up to the minute on the you know, latest sort of social media spot to hang out or, or you know, the, the latest you know, slang uh, words that are thrown around. But it's going to be like the old eternal verities of, of you know, uh, structural integrity. So much of it is is narrative, is is figuring out the tricks, and they are tricks, really, that 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 make it go as a narrative. And and that's just something that's 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 really the most interesting thing, because you never ultimately have uh, a formula that goes from piece to piece. It's always going to have to be rediscovered every time you work on a long piece and and you know that's kind of fun you know that that makes it fun for me thank you john seabrook all right man that was excellent um awesome i recommend everyone check out this book i actually normally i say all these stories are available in the show notes but in this context i'm going to say as someone who just read the book this weekend if you haven't read these stories I would recommend just reading them straight through in the book. The book puts them in a really interesting context to each other, and I really enjoyed it. So thank you very much. Thanks, Aaron. We'll be back next week. And that was the Long Form Podcast. Thanks very much to John Seabrook. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Uh, the editor for this episode was Erica Kramer. Our intern was Molly Bain. Thanks very much to our sponsors, Masterclass, EA Sports FIFA 16, and of course, MailChimp. We'll be back next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.